Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. words to which I withdraw our attention to this morning come from the book of Exodus, chapter 34, the first nine verses. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Exodus 34. Would you stand with me out of respect and reverence for God's Word as I read it, that we might receive with meekness the implanted Word which is able to save our souls. Hear the Word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourselves two tablets, a stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to, the, to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please, Let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, you have caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant us that we may in such a way hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to share a secret with you this morning. The only way we are going to get our lives ordered aright is by getting our thinking about God right. 
the only way we are going to get our lives ordered aright is by getting our thinking about God right. Is your life ordered aright? I'm not saying if it's organized. I'm not saying if it's planned. I'm not saying if you have everything together. Is it ordered aright according to ultimate reality? Ordered aright according to what is good and right and true? Beautiful. Ordered aright in your spiritual life. Too many people today are riding Mr. Rogers' trolley into the land of make-believe. When God has said, this is who I am and this is what ultimate reality is. And it all went wrong at the very beginning. After the fall of Adam and Eve, after they had been banished from the Garden of Eden, after they had been exiled by the Lord, they had two sons. First Cain and then Abel. If you're familiar with the events in Cain and Abel's life, you'll remember that both Cain and Abel brought an offering to the Lord. Cain was a worker of the ground, so he brought forth the fruit of the ground as his offering to the Lord. Abel was the keeper of sheep, a shepherd, and so he brought the firstborn of his flock and the fat portions as his offering to the Lord. Then it says there in Genesis 4 that the Lord regarded or accepted Abel's offering, but he had no regard or did not accept Cain's offering. The reason for the Lord not regarding Cain's offering was Cain's heart was not so much what they were offering as the heart, the intention behind the offering. Cain's bad heart, however, could not be kept to himself. And there's a commentary right there. Bad hearts are looking to destroy not only themselves, but others as well. Cain became angry. So God warned Cain, Cain, sin is crouching at the door. It's crouching at the door of your heart. Your sin is ready to overtake you, Cain. Be careful. Be on guard. Do not let it overtake you. But that's exactly what it did. Cain rose up and murdered his brother Abel. Things were going from bad. Adam and Eve rejecting God's goodness and God's provision in the garden now to their first two children, their first two sons, one killing the other. What more could go wrong? Five generations after Cain, one of Cain's descendants, a man by the name of Lamech, comes on the scene and he begins to boast of his excessive wickedness. It says this in Genesis 4, 23 and 24, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. The Lord had promised Cain that if anyone would go out and kill Cain, strike him dead, that the Lord would venge his death and 
Venge his death sevenfold. Now Lamech says, on account of his utter and complete wickedness, he should be considered safer than Cain. You hear what God did? God said, Cain, I will protect you. If anyone kills you, I will venge your death. Lamech says, I am so wicked, I am so awful, that I'm even safer than Cain was. That God's vengeance, if anyone were to kill me, would be 77-fold. Lamech, in effect, says, you think Cain was bad? I've topped him beyond all comparison. Wickedness and evil were at an all-time high, but shining through the darkness was a glimmer of light, a spark of hope. Perhaps we think things get worse and worse and worse in our lives, worse and worse and worse in this world, and we don't know if there's any hope, if there's any glimmer of goodness and truth. Well, Adam and Eve bore another son named Seth, and Seth bore a son named Enosh, and then we are told this. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. That's Genesis 4.26. They were beginning to rightly think about God and rightly worship God so that their lives would be ordered around what is ultimately true. Calling upon the name of the Lord is another way of saying worshiping the Lord. And so here is the beginning of any chance of renewal, any chance of revival, any hope of salvation, any consolation for a better future. It's all bound to the strong name of the Lord. And throughout the Bible, we see the name of the Lord plays a significant role. It is central, prominent, something to be known and something that can be known. And knowing the name of the Lord makes all the difference in the world, as it does here in Exodus 34, where the self-revelation of the Lord, as He proclaims His name, displays God's goodness and God's glory. And so you want to see the goodness of the Lord, you want to see the glory of the Lord, here it is in the proclamation of the Lord's name. And it's the name of the Lord that elicits a response from those who know it and understand it. So the Bible tells us to bless the name of the Lord, to sing to the name of the Lord, to trust in the name of the Lord, to fear the name of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord, to give thanks to the name of the Lord, to find help in the name of the Lord, to run into the name of the Lord, for it is a strong tower and those who run to it are safe, to seek refuge in the name of the Lord, to give glory to the name of the Lord, to love the name of the Lord, to walk or live in the name of the Lord. When the name of the Lord is proclaimed, there will always be a response. Sometimes when we make decisions, choices in our lives, we have to consider the cost. We have to consider What's at stake? When I make this choice, when I make this decision that I'm about to make, what's at stake? What will be the outcome? Do we ever stop to consider what is at stake with our worship? And have we ever thought, 
It's the reputation of the name of the Lord that is at stake. Through how we worship, through our attitude toward worship, our heart in worship, what we communicate through worship, and what we exalt in worship will either glorify the name of the Lord or bring disrepute upon the name of the Lord. May our worship never, never revile the name of the Lord in any way, but may the reputation of the Lord's great and glorious name only be magnified in our worship. For it is our response to the name of the Lord that will either glorify His name or treat His name as common, as ordinary. It's nothing special. In the first seven verses of our text this morning, Exodus 34, 1 through 7, we have seen the action of the Lord preparing His people for renewal, the proclaiming of His name to bring about renewal, but now we see Moses' response. And so as we consider Moses' response this morning in verses 8 and 9, let us also consider our response. When the name of the Lord is proclaimed, how should we respond? When the Lord is going to bring renewal to His people, what is our response to be? And so last week, we looked at the Lord's preparation before renewal. We looked at the Lord's proclamation as the basis or is the basis for our renewal. But this morning, number three, our posture lends itself to renewal. Our posture now lends itself to renewal. When was the last time you did something quickly? You did something with expediency, with urgency. Is there anything this week that you would say, this action I took, I did immediately? Often when we do things in our lives with a sense of urgency or immediacy, it flows from an emergency. If someone's hurt or sick or injured, we urgently need to get them to the hospital or to the doctor. Or maybe there's a threat. Taxes were due this week, so immediately you had to get them into the mail. I would dare say urgency and expediency are not common ways that we would describe the actions that we often take. But here, do you see it? Verse 8, and Moses quickly or immediately or urgently bows his head. He makes haste, as it were. His response is filled with urgency, and so he quickly bows his head down and worships. Would we ever describe our worship in this way? Is there ever urgency in our worship, ever an immediate immediacy in our need to worship? Do we ever say, let us make haste to worship the Lord? Let us make haste to gather together with His people. How often is it just another thing that we do? Something we check off our list? Something we can push aside if there are other things to do? Not only have we lost the priority of the necessity to worship, but we've lost the sense of urgency to worship. 
Is it something that we have to do? Is it something that we cannot escape? Is it something that we are bound to? There is no such thing as listless, apathetic, indifferent worship of the true and living God. There is something in us as Christians that should say, that even must say, I must worship. I have to do it. Make haste to worship. Make haste to the congregation. Make haste to praise Him, to glorify Him, and to exalt Him. And so Moses responds in prostration, humility, and self-abasement, and in worship to the proclamation of the Lord's name. And he does so with urgency quickly. Moses' heart was so impacted by the proclamation that he had to take an outward action to reflect the inward response that was going on in his heart. So Moses bowed his head toward the earth, or he laid his head in the dust. He took action that was meant to reduce his profile. It was the opposite of puffing yourself up. We talk of people as, of those who might be puffed up with pride or puff up their chests with pride. What's happening in those instances? People are making themselves look bigger than they actually are. Prostration is the opposite action, making yourself look small. It's saying that your head is over nothing. You have no authority in such a position. You have no power in such a position. You are in complete and utter submission. Your head is in the dust because you remember that you are nothing but dust. We came from dust, and to dust we shall return. Such is an appropriate position before the creator of the universe, the one who has created the dust and the one who created us out of the dust. We have already been told in Exodus, the earth is the Lord's, and that Yahweh made the earth. And so Moses' response is based on this creator and creature distinction. Moses is not only recognizing that the Lord is God, but he is also declaring he is not. The earth does not belong to him. He did not make it. He has no claim to any supremacy over the earth whatsoever in and of himself. Moses was casting himself at the mercy of the one who is above him, indicating his own unworthiness and so simultaneously exclaiming the utter worthiness of the Lord. Would we ever prostrate ourselves before the Lord? If we can't perhaps physically, at least in our hearts. Is your heart ever bowed down to the ground within you? Are you ever prostrate before the Lord? It is the necessary position to move on to worship. Moses bowed down and then he worshiped. Bowing down is not a radical action for super Christians, it's a regular action for ordinary Christians. Bowing before the Lord is not something that only 
super special Christians do. It's what every Christian does. We all do it, and we must do it regularly, often. Moses bowed his head down to the ground, and then he worshipped. It's only then that he appropriately could worship because in the position of prostration, all focus on self has been removed. Worship that is self-focused is flawed worship. True worship is not to focus on self, but it is to focus on the Lord. True worship is not to be distracted by self, but it is for our full attention to be on our great God and Savior. This act that we're doing right now should be an act of self-forgetfulness. It should be an act where we're putting all of our attention on the Lord. Worship comes after the Lord proclaims divine words of His divine name. And so worship is always a responsive act. And notice here, I find this fascinating. Verse 8, Moses bowed down his head toward the earth and worshipped. Notice there was great specificity in that. He worshipped, but there's also some vagueness. What does that look like? What do we think about? We think about worship. Did Moses sing songs? Maybe. Did Moses preach a sermon? Maybe. Whatever this worship entailed, it was giving all the glory and honor to God as the sovereign Lord over everything. It was, in fact, Moses saying something like what it says in Psalm 115, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. What we can definitely say in Moses' worship is that it included prayer because that's the very next thing that Moses did. It's an appropriate example for us to follow. Adoration ahead of supplication. Lord, I adore you. I adore your name. And now, Lord, I'm going to make my requests before you. I'm going to make some requests based upon your name. And so our posture lends itself to renewal. But number four this morning, our petition for renewal. There is a petition that goes along for our renewal. It was appropriate on this pathway for renewal between God and his people that Moses make requests before the Lord. <laughs> this is going to seem very basic, but we got to say it. If you want to be renewed, ask the Lord to renew you. <laughs> If you want to be revived, ask God to revive you. If you want to be changed, ask the Lord to change you. If you want to be saved, ask for Him to save you. I believe God has so put that desire there so that you would ask Him. He is even involved in our asking. We can, at times, ask for the wrong things. Ask for things to spend upon our own passions. It's because our asking is not directed by God, but by our flesh. But Moses here has a request that's centered on God. And so where does Moses' request start? 
if now I have found favor in your eyes, or we could say it this way, if I have found grace in your eyes. Think of what Moses is asking for. He has just had all of God's goodness and God's glory pass before him. He has just heard the name of the Lord proclaimed. Moses, at this moment, was a direct recipient of God's amazing grace, experiencing divine, supernatural, loving grace. And what does Moses ask for? In essence, he asks for more grace. God, you have already lavished your grace upon me. It's God's grace that Moses is having this experience. He has already had God's grace heaped upon him so that his plate is overflowing. And then Moses, in essence, said, Give me more grace, God. Grace upon grace upon grace. It was appropriate that Moses lay hold of the grace that had been revealed to him in God's glory. Had Moses been a recipient of God's grace? Yes, but then he says, if I have found favor, give me more. Do you know God's grace? Here's one way to know if you do. You want more. You never say, ah, you know what? I've had enough grace. I'm good. I'm good. When God gives you his grace, you want more. You are never satisfied. His grace, his grace is our desire. How the Lord has lavished his grace upon us. How we have been bathed by his grace in salvation. And this is the grace that comes through his son, Jesus Christ. Think about what it says in John 1, verses 14 and 16. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And from His fullness, we have all received, what? Grace upon grace. So Jesus Christ came, embodied in flesh, the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, and it's from His fullness, the fullness of who He is, that He has lavished His grace upon us. And it's like this fire hose of grace that continues to drench us. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. It is never-ending grace. What are we doing? (laughs) What are we doing? We're like children by the seaside building our own sandcastles, trying to make a name for ourselves, trying to clean ourselves up, trying to make ourselves look good. And what happens? God's grace, the waves of His grace, keep coming into our lives and wiping out all of our sandcastles and saying, it's not about what you build. It's not about what you've done. It's about me and what I've done for you. It's about my son who will give you the grace that you need for salvation. And then Moses does something a little different. He makes his appeal to the Lord, but notice here in verse 9, 
if I have found favor in your sight. O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. That word, repeated twice, Lord, and then again, Lord, is a different word than what we've been hearing for most of the book of Exodus. So like, if you just look in verse 1 there for a moment, the Lord said to Moses, notice how that Lord is all blocked letters, it's like it's all capitalized. That's saying that in the original, in the Hebrew, that's the proper name of the Lord, Yahweh. That's the name that he revealed to his people, Yahweh, that's the Lord. Here now, Moses doesn't use that word, Yahweh, he uses a different word, Adonai, which is this idea of master. Why does Moses do this? Why does Moses make this change? Well, a few reasons, a few we'll look at right now and then we'll get to another one later. But one reason is Moses is placing himself in the position as a servant before the Lord. In this request, he is recognizing that he is coming before the Lord, before the master, that he himself is a mere servant of the Lord. O Lord, as the master, let your will be done. I am making this request desiring to ask in accordance with your will what you want. And so Moses, as the servant of the Lord, is making this request. But also I think there is a contrast that's happening with something that happened earlier. If you remember back in Exodus 14, the Lord called Moses. Moses, I'm going to send you to my people to bring them out of Egypt. And you remember what Moses does? He has a lot of excuses. He has a lot of reasons why. He shouldn't be the one that goes. Oh, Lord, I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Oh, Lord, please just send someone else. In two instances there in Exodus 4, verse 10 and 13, the Lord uses, or Moses uses the same word, Lord, Master, in those verses. And now, interestingly enough, he uses that same word two times again close together. I think there should be great encouragement in this because I think we see where Moses was in Exodus 4 is not where Moses is in Exodus 34. <laughs> in Exodus 4, in the Lord, or in Moses using this word Lord, he's not being a very good servant. He's not being the servant that he should be before the Lord. But now, look what the Lord has done in Moses' life to get him to where he wants to serve the Lord now with these requests. Moses has become the servant of the Lord that God wanted him to be. The Lord has so changed his heart. He's aligned the request that Moses makes with God's plan and purposes. So what does he request? What are we to request in our response? These are these sub-points now, A, B, and C. But A, first, request God's presence among his people. Request God's presence among his people. The first thing that Moses asked for, Lord, go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. The only way forward for the people of God is if the Lord's presence was with them. If the Lord guided them, if he protected them, the Lord promised that with the construction of the tabernacle, he would dwell in the midst of his people. That's Exodus 25, 8. The Lord being in their midst communicates a relational 
closeness, the Lord would be near His people. He would not be far off. He would not be distant. And look at this. I find this fascinating. What is the grounding for this request? What's the basis for this request? What's the reason that Moses gives why the Lord should answer this request? Listen. Please let the Lord go in the midst of us. Why? Because it is a stiff-necked people. That is not a reason that you would give if you are trying to persuade someone to go with them. Moses say, go with us, Lord. Why? Because we're sinners. We're rebellious. We're obstinate. We're stiff-necked people. God, be with us. How again we are reminded that nothing in them, that it is nothing in them, that's going to make God be in their midst. If His presence is in their midst, it's because of His grace. And Moses includes himself among the hard-hearted people. Do you hear that? Please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. He, as covenant mediator, holds himself responsible for the community's activity. He identifies himself with the people's sins. And so we ask the Lord to go with them. But next, B, he requests God's pardon for his people. He requests God's pardon for his people. Moses had just been told that God is a forgiving God. That his steadfast love would abound to thousands and thousands and thousands. And so it's right that then Moses would say, Lord, pardon our sin. Lord, forgive us of our sin. Notice again, it is a God who delights in forgiving sinners. This is what Moses wants Right on the heels of what the Lord has proclaimed in his name, Moses asked that he would show himself faithful to his promises and forgive them of their sin. Is there sin in your life that you need to ask for forgiveness for? To know that you can be forgiven, you can go to the Lord. He is the Lord who pardons iniquity and sin. And then C, requests God's possession of his people. Requests God's possession of his people. The last request seems a little unusual, but Moses asked that the Lord would take them as his inheritance, or that they would be the Lord's possession, just as the Lord had promised in Exodus 19.5, where he tells his people, you will be my treasured possession. Moses is merely praying back what the Lord had promised. Some of the most theologically profound prayers in the Old Testament express the plea that Yahweh should restore Israel on the grounds of them being His inheritance and possession. And this is a basis that suggests that when He possesses His people, He possesses them permanent. They are always His possession. They will never not be His possession. What a thought that God's people would be His inheritance, His possession. No man can give a gift to God that he might be repaid, but God can give Himself a gift. And what a gift He has given Himself in the gift of we who are His people. And all of these requests, the request 
that God would that God's presence would be among his people, the God's the request that God's pardon would happen upon his people, the, the request that God's possession would take place of his people, all of these requests find their fulfillment in Christ. It's Christ's presence in the midst of his people that makes all the difference in our lives. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He promises that he is with us even to the end of the age. It is he who tells us his brothers the Lord's name and who sings the praise of his Father in the midst of the congregation. Or look at this, Psalm 110, Psalm 110. Psalm 110. Remember that word Lord that you were talking about earlier? Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Look closely at those words Lord there. The Lord, that is Yahweh, says to my Lord Adonai, What's happening? Remember who's writing this psalm? It's a psalm of David. The Lord, Yahweh, we know who that is, right? Yahweh, that's clear. Who is this other Lord? Says to my Lord, who is that? Well, when you read the New Testament, come to find out this, my Lord is the final Davidic king. This is no one other than Jesus. The Lord says to my Lord, to Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so as we think about what Moses was asking for from the Lord, that he would be in the midst of his people, so how we should desire our risen Savior to be in our midst, and he is in our midst through his Spirit which indwells us. It is He, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who stands in the midst of the golden lampstands, which are the churches of God. He is caring for us. He is tending to us. He is ministering to us. Do you know Christ's presence in your life? The presence of the risen Lord. Is He your master? Are you the one, are you one who submits to Him and to His will and to what He wants? Are you one even who bows the knee to him. And it's Christ Jesus who also provides pardon and the forgiveness of our sins. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Ephesians 1, 7. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Acts 10.43 Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Acts 13.38 And it's also through Christ that we are now God's treasured possession. We've been adopted into the family of God through Christ, so now we are heirs with Christ. So we say with those 
who quoted Psalm 118 on that Palm Sunday. Blessed is he who what? Comes in the name of the Lord. The Lord's name was proclaimed. 3,500 years ago on Mount Sinai, roughly. The Lord's name was proclaimed for Moses to hear. But the Lord's name is finally and fully proclaimed with the coming of Jesus Christ. It's Him who directs us to the truth of that name. It's Him who helps us and teaches us to think rightly about God so that our lives are ordered aright. It's He who gives us God's presence and God's pardon and makes us God's possession so that we can be renewed, revived, and reconciled to God through our union with Him. And that's a union for those who know Christ that you can never unknow. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. May you use your word in our lives to make us more like Jesus Christ. And Father, if there is someone here who does not know you, I pray that today they would put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, in the one who is the final and full expression of your name, the one who is the, who is the exact imprint of your nature. And as they put their faith in you, that they would repent of their sin, turn from their sin, forsake their sin, that they might be forgiven and receive the gift of eternal life. Oh Lord, I pray that we would be people who bow our heads to the dust. And that we would do that regularly. Because you are worthy to be worshipped. And Father, that it would have a sense of urgency about it. Because our hearts are truly filled with awe and wonder and thankfulness and grace. All of which you have put there by the greatness of who you are. Father, may this word save our souls that we've heard this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.